0: Hi there and welcome to another one of my podcasts. This time I'm going to deal with a husband and wife team, you might say. First of all, the husband. Alessandro Cigliani was born in 1906 and died in 1977. He studied in Milan with a tenor whose name was Alfredo Cecchi. He first performed on stage in Madame Butterfly in Dal Verme in Milano and did well enough that he was asked take part in a full recording of La Traviata for HMV the following year. He then toured Holland, hoping to get a contract with a touring Italian opera company, which indeed he managed to get. He sang in La Traviata, La Boheme, Tosca, Rigoletto, and Lucia. And by that list of operas, you get the idea that he was indeed a lyrical spinto tenor, and a very fine one at that. Later on, he went to the USA with his wife, of whom we'll hear later. But first, he managed to get into La Scala, where he became a regular singer throughout the 30s. He also sang in Nazi Germany, and apparently sang in German very well, which was unusual for Italian singers. Not that he was a Nazi, he just found he liked singing there. And after World War Two indeed, he recorded for Telefunken, a German record label. But he retired in 1952 from singing and formed an operatic singer's agency called Alchi. ALCI. And as I said, he survived till 1977. It's a beautiful voice. For some reason or other, his name is not remembered, mainly because, I suppose, he had all those great rivals in the 30s, people like Benjamin Oji. Yussi Birling and the rest, but as so often is the case, where he's singing today, he'd be a huge name. I regard him as better than, say, Pavarotti, and he sings beautifully and apparently effortlessly. I was going to give you his Nessun Dorma, but, ah, oh, everybody sings that. This is a serenata. When you say serenata, you usually think of the ones written by Tosti or Toselli. This one was written by Mascagni, and it's a gorgeous song which somehow people don't sing that much anymore. This is Siliani at the age of 29 in 1935 singing Mascagni Serenata. here's somebody I haven't played for a long time. He was a major star in this time. He was born in 1892 and survived till 1964, which made him 72 years old. And they were an important 72 years because his career sort of stretched from the beginning of recording, acoustic recording cylinders, right the way through to the era of television. And he was pretty much famous throughout that time. He was born in New York from Jewish parents and his mother died when he was two years old. He was born with a name, well, no, it is quite sure. It's either Isidore or Edward Israel Iscovich. After his mother died, he was sort of adopted by his grandmother, whose name originally was Kantrovich. That was probably why when he went on stage and didn't want to have such a long, cumbersome name, he made Edward into Eddie and he made his surname part of Kantrovich, he became known as Eddie Cantor. And he became known early on in saloons and vaudeville, singing songs that were very, very gently suggestive, and he would make them seem more so by rolling his eyes in a very recognisable way, so much so that his nickname later was Banjo Eyes. In actual fact, the songs that he sang were fairly harmless, but I suppose by the standards of the day they were slightly suggestive. He didn't have the greatest voice in the world, but it was perfectly good enough to sing the sort of stuff he was singing, and he had a strong personality which everybody loved. I've played a couple of his tracks. This is one of the less suggestive ones, and it's called Mandy, and he had a minor hit with this. This is one of his later electric recordings because... His recordings go back to pretty much World War I, but here this must have been in the 30s or maybe even early 40s. This then is Eddie Cantor singing Mandy. Mandy, there's a
1: minister would be dandy if we let him make a fee so don't you linger here's a ring for your finger isn't it a humdinger come along and let the wedding chime, bring a happy time for Mandy and me I was thrown in It somebody singing a familiar tune. So I stopped a while to listen. Not a word I wanted to miss. It was just somebody serenading something like this. To make a feast. So don't you linger. Here's a ring for your finger. Isn't it a humdinger? Come along and let the wedding chime bring a happy time for me. Digger. Come along and let the wedding time bring a happy time
0: for Mandy. Now here's someone who is pretty much undeservedly forgotten. She was born in Chattanooga, Tennessee, in 1904 and survived only till 1956. Her name was Valida Snow. Her mother was a Howard University educated music teacher, while her father, John, was a minister who also ran a sort of group of performing kids known as the Picaninny Troubadours. She started in this group when she was five and she soon learned all sorts of instruments. She could play cello, bass, banjo, violin, mandolin, harp, accordion, clarinet, trumpet and saxophone. And she also sang and danced. So really, no talent whatsoever. Her solo career kicked off when she joined a popular review called Holiday in Dixieland after a marriage which was not exactly nice. And she then had a run at the Harlem Cabaret where she got to perform alongside Josephine Baker in a musical which was a sort of follow-up to Shuffle Along. So that was the early 20s. By the time she was 20, she was already going all around the country and was already known as a dancer, musician and singer, mainly known for her trumpet playing. In 1924, she got to be quite a name alongside Elizabeth Welsh and Josephine Baker again in a show called The Chocolate Dandies. Sometimes she was even called Little Louie after Louis Armstrong, who called her the world's second best jazz trumpeter. She became most popular, I suppose, not in America, but as the toast of London and Paris, and she recorded at that time. She was also in the Ethel Waters show, Rhapsody in Black, in New York. So that was her sort of most successful period. During the war, still in Europe, she was arrested by the Nazis, because, of course, she was black. That didn't help her. But she managed to get released in a sort of prisoner exchange, in May 42. She returned to America, married somebody called Earl Edwards, but she was never able to regain the fame that she'd once had, and she died of a stroke in 1956. Her records aren't that easy to find, but I do have one track of hers, and I think it shows you how good she was. As an all-round musician-singer, this is her version recorded in 1935 of a little tune called I wish you were twins, and I think you'll enjoy it as much as I have.
2: I wish that I was twins, in grace and shady skin, so I could love you twice as much as I do. I'd have four loved ones to embrace you. you twice as much as I do You saved me, saved me again How I wish that I would win So I could love ya Twice as much as I do I've all my loving arms To embrace you For honest, I, I'd love you Oh, time I face you With two hot twice You just tell me what you hold it to do When four years Is you saying I'm yours Oh, great big baby chin, Now I also wish that I was twin, so I could love you twice as much as I do, yeah, man. Mm-hmm. Oh, thank you, oh,
3: thank <laughs> you.
0: I began today's podcast by talking about Alessandro Cigliami, and I told you that I would be speaking about his wife. This was Giuseppina Favaro, known on stage as Mafalda Favaro for some reason or other. She was born in a place called Ponto Maggiore near Ferrara in 1903, which makes her three years older than her husband. When she was studying, she attracted the attention of the composer Alfano, and she began her career in her early twenties in a place called Cremona before moving to Parma, where she sang various things. And finally La Scala, where she made her debut singing Eva of all things or in the Meister von Nuremberg, under the baton of no less a person than Arturo Toscanini. She was still only twenty six. She remained a regular singer at La Scala until nineteen fifty, as well as singing in London, the United States, and various other places such as that. At some point in the thirties, she must have met Filiani and they were married apparently quite happily. And she carried on her career, singing various operas, including quite a few new ones, such as Alfano's L'ultimo Lord, Mascagni's Pinotta, Zandonai's Farsa amorosa, and Wolf Ferrari's Il Campiello. All of which are sort of semi-forgotten works, sadly, these days. I bet you some of them are pretty good. She was attracted to Madame Butterfly, but, you know, it's one of those operas which sounds as if it's a nice, easy opera to sing, but it's actual fact you need to be a dramatic singer. And Favaro was a sort of person who gave her all when she sang. She was regarded as being sensual and very emotional. And she said later that this opera, trying to sing it, shortened her career by at least five years. which is an interesting comment. Here we are back in the opera by Mascagni called Lamico Fritz. And the only other recording I've played for you of her was the famous, deservedly famous duet from Lamiko Fritz that she sang with a great Kito Skipper. That's back in, I believe, podcast number 17. It's just wonderful. So you can scroll back and listen to it if you want to. Here she is singing the soprano aria from the same opera which is called Son Pochi Fiori and she's just lovely you could sort of eat her voice with a spoon it's just charming so here is the other half of that married couple Mafalda Favaro in 1936 singing Son Pocchi Fiori be probably listening to this from the 1st of May onwards. It takes me quite a lot of time each month to put this podcast together, which is why I keep saying please tell as many people as you can to listen to it, because it does take quite a lot of work, and it's free. This month has been, well, something special. I just wanted to say a couple of words about it. I had some gigs in Belgium and Holland and to cut a long story short while I was there a cold which I already had went to my larynx. Even now my voice isn't quite back the way it should be but it's about 90% better and is gradually improving so that I can do gigs again. It's just a cold, it's sticky phlegm and it takes a long time to go away. However, I'm delighted at least to be able to speak again. About two weeks ago, I could hardly get a word out without coughing or spluttering or whatever. Having said all that, I'm going to introduce something different to this podcast because so far I've just played electrical recordings. Now I'm going to go back into the real beginning of recording. Cylinder recording was invented somewhere around 1878 and discs came about ten years later. By 1890, cylinders were commercially on sale. And in those days, because everything was recorded into a sort of horn, they preferred using voices and instruments that suited the horn as a recording medium. So they recorded a lot of things like bells, trumpets, and of course, brass bands. I'm going to play you a brass band record made in 1890, and this is a recording of the King Cotton March, one of the John Philip Sousa marches, which you can hear played pretty much today by going on YouTube and typing in King Cotton March. You'll hear what it sounds like in modern stereo sound. But this is what it sounded like played by a brass band in 1890. The name of the band is the Battery Band of New York. I'm a Londoner, not a New Yorker, but I understand that the Battery is the name of a sort of park somewhere in the deep south of Manhattan, Island, And this is obviously a brass band that played there, probably on a bandstand. There certainly have been bands like that in England. So this is the Battery Band of New York. It's announced, of course, because Senators didn't have labels on them. Somebody shouts out what it is and who's playing it, and then you'll hear the band playing for over two minutes officially these were only two-minute synoders but they could go on a little bit longer so here is the battery band of new york in eighteen ninety playing the king cotton march Well, of course, the sound quality of that was somewhat crude. In fact, because it was a recording in 1890, and people bought cylinders just because it was a recording at all. This was a brand new idea. Nobody had had it before. We can't listen to the actors who performed for Shakespeare in the 17th century or whenever because nobody knew how to record them. This was something really epoch changing. However, If you have the idea that all cylinders had the same really poor sound quality, not so. Like every other form of sound recording, they kept working on the technical side of things and things improved. In fact, cylinders were sold really until the early 20s as far as I remember, before finally they gave up the ghost and the gramophone took over from the phonograph completely. Well, I'm going to play you a cylinder now from probably around 1911-12, and it features a lady who was born with the name of Sophia Kalish, and she was born in the Ukraine. But she moved to America like so many Jewish people back then, and she became much better known in her long life as Sophie Tucker. Later on, she called herself the last of the Red Hot Mamas, and she became very famous for a particular recording, sentimental one called, My Yiddish Mama. But early on, she was described in the phonograph catalogues as a coon shouter. She certainly was very interested in black singers and later on jazz. And in the early decades of the century, it was more ragtime. And she was certainly interested in imitating black music that was around her. As I said before, the horn phonograph looked for people with big, strong voices. Of course, opera singers were perfect, but if you could belt out a song really loudly, that was the sort of singer that they were looking for, and Sophie Teicher was certainly one of those. Indeed, in her later life, I think that she probably lost her voice somewhat. She tended to talk her lyrics in later life because she maybe overdid things. Anyway, as a coon shouter, She tended to specialise around 1910 to 15 in what was the new music. Jazz hadn't really arrived on the scene yet, so everything was called ragtime. And this is a recording made around that time of something called That Loving Rag. Unlike the last track, which ran more than two minutes, this one doesn't really give you full value. The whole recording's over in about 1 minute 40. She also made 4 minute cylinders. But I'm going to play you this little one because the sound is so good for its time. So this is Sophie Tarker, before World War I, singing That Loving Rag.
4: The Loving Rag The Loving Rag Fills you with joy and joyful jag It makes you glad Your heart is never had the lovely loving rag. Your honey gal clothes so to your breast, Oh, you dance the rag. You love the best, say yeah. you never want to stop that loving rag. <laughs> oh, Lordy, 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 hear that tune. I'll forget my and mother mighty soon. Keep right on the rag, you not a step by this. I tell you, babe, a oh, homie, nothing like this. Put your arms around me, we glad alone. I feel myself a slippin', I mean no wrong. Close your eyes, my face, we dance till morn. That junk's on Lovin' Rag. Oh, you hear that music? softly play, say, I could dance all night and dance. I've been ragged, the Lovin' Rag, the bomber come on, come on, get out of my way. I want a brass band playing for me. Don't no get more, more suitors, the only love in not a color harmony is a loving love in
0: Now we come to my track before I do so let me repeat please share the link to this website so that we get a lot more listeners I know I say this every time but I don't think you're doing it put it on Facebook put it on Twitter put it everywhere it's free as you know and there must be some other people who'd love to hear some of this old music well now In the past, so far, I've often put on some of my most recent recordings. Recently, I've had a thing about what I call ageism in music. People don't get signed when they're past 30 or 40. And yet, I know that we get better as we get older, provided we don't lose our voices completely. I found a recording not ever meant to be played in public, but just with a cheap mic, with me singing at the piano, just so that I wouldn't forget how the tune went that I'd just written. And I wrote this song when I was, oh, 18 or 19 years old. It's not that good. It's a bit teenagey, which is fair enough. I was a teenager. But you can hear how I began. So this is yours truly back in 19... 19- Ooh, 64, I should think. And I'm singing a song that I wrote at that time called Spring is Dead. Yes, very, very emotional. And uh, I hope you'll find it interesting. Earl Oakin in 1964 at the age of 18. And with that, until next time, as always, au revoir.
3: daytime nightmare
1: Tumbling down,
3: and when all love dies.